And you know, getting death threats for me and my family and harassing my daughters to the point where I have to get security is just, I mean, it's amazing. I, I wouldn't have imagined in my wildest dreams that people who object to things that are pure public health principles are so set against it and don't like what you and I say, namely in the word of science, that they actually threaten you. I mean, that to me is just strange. Dr. Fauci being targeted by extremist groups, physically uh, threatened. And that was really the first big case that, that we saw in our data. And since then, it's every day. Since then, we're, we see every day um, threats to county epidemiologists, government scientists, um, at every level. It's become a, a really effective tactic of organizations and individuals that, um, for whatever their incentive is, the outcome that they want to see is nobody getting vaccinated uh, and, a, and a much reduced role uh, of science in our society. So it's really concerning. It's really scary. Welcome to our podcast about biotechnology breakthroughs, the DNA of all living things, and the DNA of scientists, companies, and patients who make miracles happen. I'm Phyllis Arthur, BIO's Vice President of Infectious Diseases Policy, and you're listening to I Am BIO. So the bad news first. Despite U.S. scientists producing two game-changing, COVID-ending vaccines in record time, an awful lot of Americans still aren't sure about taking this protection. And unless people of goodwill who believe in science band together to convince them the game won't change and COVID won't end. The good news is that vaccine hesitancy can be overcome and really turned into vaccine confidence. But if that's going to happen and we're going to vaccinate the 75 to 85 percent of Americans we need to reach herd immunity, we need to up our social media game and as quickly as we can. It doesn't matter whether the online noise is being fueled by innocent misinformation or devious disinformation. And it's both, by the way. We need to do this. Never in the history of medicine has there been such a concerted effort to scare the bejesus out of the American people, despite two vaccines blessed by the FDA and the CDC as being extremely safe and uncommonly effective. It's time to fight fire with fire. No, we don't mean threaten the anti-vaxxers the way Dr. Fauci and other public health officials have been intimidated by this groups. We mean it's time to educate the public and also stodgy public health types about how to use digital tools to rebut the madness that's filling our social media feeds every single day, instead of just ignoring it. That's right, the effort needs you. If you spend a fair amount of time online, we need you to help fight back and patrol your platform in the name of science. Right now, it's asymmetric digital warfare. Only the anti-science crowd is playing with live IMO while we're just standing by the wayside, occasionally throwing back a few rocks. We need to stand up for truth and flag vaccination falsehoods on the web when we see them. We need to convince a critical mass that taking the COVID vaccination isn't a political statement. It isn't a safety risk, and it certainly isn't an effort by Bill Gates to microchip all of us. It's a medical miracle, 
two of them, and counting. Pfizer and Moderna's breakthroughs had been safely tested on more than 70,000 people. These people took a risk in clinical trials for all of us, just to eliminate our actual risk. The vaccines can bring an expeditious end to this COVID nightmare, but only if they're trusted and taken by the overwhelming majority of all of us. It's time to get smart, get educated, get online and fight back. And most of all, get vaccinated like your life depends on it, because it just might. We're living through a time in America where our scientific capabilities are at an all-time high. But public trust in government and the biopharmaceutical industry are unfortunately near historic lows. In the public health community, we have a saying. There's a difference between vaccine and vaccination. Our breakthrough science is only as good as the public's trust in it. And people's willingness to take this protection after rigorous scientific review are going to be really important in the coming months. Today's guest is Dr. Joe Smizer. As CEO of the Public Good Projects, he oversees a robust 50-state, 24-hour, year-round tracking of vaccine information that's being propagated on social media and traditional media. No one else is collecting this level of detailed information about the current public conversation around vaccines in general and the COVID vaccine in particular and the hesitancy to those. So, Joe, thanks for making the time and welcome to I Am Bio. Thanks very much for having me. Before we dive into the topic of vaccine hesitancy and how we overcome it, let's actually help our listeners understand a little more about you and your background. So you were in the Peace Corps, volunteering in Swaziland. Then you went on to get your master's degree and your PhD in public health. You did your postdoc at the CDC. Now you're approaching five years as the CEO of Public Good Projects, which is a nonprofit that's committed to using communications to help solve big societal problems. Let's talk a little bit about Swaziland, because that's just such a unique uh, set of experiences. What were you doing there, and how did that lead you to actually becoming part of an organization that really works on spreading science and truth here at home? I didn't speak another language well enough to go uh, anywhere but an English-speaking country, and I had told them I wanted to focus on HIV and AIDS. Swaziland at the time had the um, the highest uh, rate uh, of HIV and AIDS in the world. Uh, it, was, it was where it was the worst, and so it, it and made sense. And when was this? What what timing was this? This was early two thousands. Okay. Yeah. So it was it was just around uh, two thousand three, two thousand four. And it's, you know, it's since gotten better, but we were only the second group uh, into the country at the time. The Peace Corps had just reopened its office and had and only reopened it because of how bad things were uh, with the AIDS epidemic. Uh, so it, there weren't a lot of resources uh, in the country. There wasn't a lot of, uh, there weren't a lot of other organizations in the country. So it was almost a, that cliched experience that, that we see in movies where, I, I mean, I really was dropped off in in the middle of a rural village and then just told to kind of figure it out and help wherever uh, I could. And I, through the process of figuring it out and helping wherever I could, I uh, ran into uh, health communications uh, professionals who worked for different UN agencies uh, and worked for the government of, of Swaziland. And I just loved it. I fell in love with it right away. And I, I felt like I could see uh, the impact at, in communities 
when someone really knew what they were doing and was really good at communicating scientific information in simple, easy to understand, relatable ways to different groups of people who needed to hear things in different ways. Uh, and I, I just loved that. I felt like it was art and science together. And so when I got back from the Peace Corps, I resolved that that was going to be what I did with my life. You also devour information on how misinformation works and why it happens the way it happens. The words used, the rhetoric, these kinds of activities. So it's going to be good to talk about how you intersect these disciplines with each other uh, in, in terms of dealing with misinformation around vaccines. We've seen an alarming set of survey data, although getting a little better over the last few months, but data showing how hesitant and skeptical tens of millions of Americans are about taking one of the COVID-19 vaccines. ABC News released a poll a few days ago showing around 40% of Americans want to get vaccinated right away. 15% say they don't want to get vaccinated at all. And about 44% say they want to wait. Why do you think so many people want to wait? I think it's important to differentiate between hesitancy or opposition to all vaccines um, as compared to novel COVID-19 vaccines, the, the vaccines yeah. that we're all um, hoping for and waiting for these days. So I think it's it depends on the communities that we're looking at. If you're looking at the African-American community in the United States, there's really legitimate reasons um, to be hesitant about all vaccines just because of the legacy of systemic racism and the the distrust that's been built over time between the public health community and black communities in the United States. So that's really understandable. And I, I wouldn't approach that with anything other than empathy. And then there are uh, other communities that are insular, um, so that are um, somewhat isolated from the rest of, of the United States or the communities around them. And there is their own nexus of of information that they have access to that's circulating around in their own social network and it doesn't have a lot of uh, ability to get outside information and so it's it's hard to penetrate those communities with new and up-to-date information and an example of that would be diaspora uh, communities so uh, immigrant communities that are really close-knit for really understandable reasons again and they get a particular kind of information from particular kinds of sources. And those sources aren't typically public health authorities or, or the government. And then you have uh, communities of very affluent, um, predominantly white people who are uh, very highly educated, uh, but very skeptical about authority in general uh, and index really highly for a belief that the body is its own is is a perfect system, uh, and that the body's own ability to create immunity should take precedent uh, over anything else, including vaccines. And then there's this growing movement, not just in the United States but globally, in distrust of institutions and of peer-reviewed science, um, and of the spokespeople of institutions and peer-reviewed science. And that, that growing movement is really focused on these narratives of individual above uh, all else, uh, personal responsibility above all else, and a belief that the smaller the government's role in our lives, uh, the better. And so all these things together uh, amount to, you know, that, that 60% of, of Americans are hesitant or outright opposed to these uh, COVID-19 vaccines. 
that makes for a very complex set of communication activities. Uh, let's talk about the data you're collecting. You have a special dashboard that uses big data and machine learning um, to really monitor and analyze thousands upon thousands of conversations happening on the web and through public discourse, news media, etc. And you call it your vector tool. These vaccine communications that tracking the response and seeing what's being said by whom. What kinds of information are you tracking through Vector? It's a lot. It's all publicly available uh, media data that we can get our hands on, uh, basically. And what I mean by publicly available would be this is stuff that's out there in the world. It's not uh, emails or private messages, nothing that's been transmitted just from one person to to another one person. It's out there in the world, but what we're doing is we're collecting all of these messages that are out there in the world and bringing them into one place, Project Vector, these dashboards that, that you referenced. In terms of what the media data actually is, it's uh, data that comes from social media uh, APIs. So data that comes, messages that are shared on Facebook and Twitter and Reddit and Instagram, social media sites like those. It's websites like online news websites and blogs and forums. It comes from online video, particularly YouTube and Vimeo. And then we also have traditional media. Uh, So uh, we have broadcast television and newspapers and magazines, uh, uh, print. So all that, all those different types of communications data uh, gets all brought in and we search through it all using what are called keyword queries. So it's just like when you open up Google and you type for you search for something in the Google search bar. That's basically what our team of data scientists do is they're searching through our version of Google. It's just that what we're searching through is all that media data that, that we've ingested. So one of the other things we've heard a lot about, and we heard this certainly during particularly the 2016 election, was the use of Russian bots and foreign adversaries inserting and inciting different information into the social media foray to destabilize our confidence. Are you seeing any evidence of these kinds of tools, Russian bots or other tools being used to destabilize our confidence in these vaccines in the U.S.? We are, and it is concerning. Uh, we see the same uh, reports that anyone would see in the in the news. Other researchers that are out there that are very focused on state-sponsored disinformation campaigns—they're very scary because we've seen just how effective they can be in in other instances, like uh, like during elections. But when it comes to narratives uh, uh, that are anti-vaccine or anti-science anti-public health. What we see as a bigger issue is is actually organic uh, uh, messages, uh, organic uh, groups, real people, real organizations, uh, many of whom are, are based in the United States, not in Russia or China or Iran, that have uh, their own incentives for creating disinformation and spreading it. They want it to spread and they want it to destabilize uh, people's trust uh, in scientists and and the government and and vaccines in general. And where we see the interplay between state actors and these uh, domestic organizations and individuals is the state actors come in and they take advantage of what is already happening. 
rather than creating something entirely new. So they're not creating a narrative. Russia isn't out there creating a narrative that we've been able to see, because why would they? It's much easier uh, if you're trying to foment division in a country to support the groups that are also trying to create division. And that's where we see them. They'll help amplify uh, messages that are increasing people's distrust in health authorities, for example. So we'll see bots latch on to a tweet that is criticizing uh, the CDC or criticizing some sort of health administration. And through that uh, bot, it'll be seen by a lot more people than it would have been. But that message, that criticism wasn't created by Russia, again, that, that we're seeing. It was created by somebody living in a state, in a city, in the United States, who really believes what they're saying. Fascinating. Let's talk about the complexity of facing the misinformation head on. It's very easy to some degree to write a, a quick false narrative, <laughs> put it in social media, which is very constrained with how many words you can use to some degree, because you don't need to actually show a whole lot of data to support it. But those of us who are used to communicating scientifically actually have all been taught that since science is not perfect, we need to qualify what we say. You want to show both sides or you want to show that this is true in these circumstances. And there's a lot of qualifiers and explanations around scientific data that don't lend themselves to quick and easy communications, lest one overstate that data. How do you communicate clear scientific information in kind of a pithy, short, easy to understand way when you're also trying to maintain the scientific integrity of that data in a world where everything needs to be very, very short. <laughs> yeah, I, I think we're butting up against a legacy, a tradition within public health globally. And it's not just in this country. It's in a lot of places, in a lot of countries. Because we've been so focused on trying to give the public the right information, evidence-based truth, We've built up these mechanisms that require a slow, steady uh, process of review before we have something that we believe we can say <laughs> to people. Yeah. And um, that means that in an environment like the one we're living through right now, where there's so much information coming at us and so much of it is misinformation, those traditional sources of health information in our country, health departments, health associations, these institutions don't have the ability, they don't have the staff, they don't have the work streams that allow them to see what is being said and rapidly come up uh, with a response. So that's part of it. It's actually not in the scope of work for public health to address misinformation in any kind of quick way. And it wasn't within the scope of public health up until very recently to even be concerned about misinformation. It just wasn't something, if you were in public health as a, as a professional communicator, that was even on your radar, and you certainly weren't ever trained to do it. Um, the other part that's, that's a real challenge is anti-vaxxers um, and now anti-maskers and the, this, this confluence of uh, organizations coming together all for shared purpose, which would be a, a kind of against science and against institutions. 
uh, health institutions, they're basically in real time doing A-B testing, which is, which is what marketers call testing one message against another message. And whichever message does the best, that's the message you use for as long as it works. And then you do another <laughs> round of messages. It's like conjoint analysis. Yeah, exactly. Pick, pick between these. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so they're doing it all the time, every minute of every day. And all that they're really focused on is what's sticky. What do people react to? What gets me the most clicks and the most views and shares? And then they're gonna they'll they'll do it and they'll they'll stick with that for as long as those clicks and shares and views are up. And then when they start to dip, they'll pivot and they'll have a new talking point for really good reasons. Science communicators can't do that because they want to be clear and they want to be consistent uh, all the time. That puts us at a deficit and allows um, these other groups and individuals to run circles around us because they will always be more effective. And by effective, I mean what they're saying will resonate more. It'll be stickier because uh, they're only using things that stick. And the other part that they're able to do uh, really effectively is leverage emotion. So whether or not it's true, the talking points that often resonate will be really combative words and and posturing. It's an us against them uh, mentality. There's salaciousness that goes with it. And there's talking about make-believe injuries uh, with no regard for whether the injury is true or not. They'll uh, crying people, uh, concerned parents, um, angry people. It's all an emotional appeal. And uh, if if you've ever watched a CDC briefing, it's pretty much the polar opposite <laughs> of an emotional appeal. Um, so we're just not very good at that in, in public health. And I think the solution is not that the CDC or HHS all of a sudden start um, crying. Uh, when they're talking about vaccines. <laughs> I think the solution is they're clear and consistent and communicating with much more regularity and and uh, using their methods that they have at their disposal to address misinformation in real time every day. And there's a whole science around that and, and what works and what doesn't. But there's also bringing more people to the table. So I spoke about the, the these legacies and traditions in public health Because we've been so focused on you can only say something when it's been through all these levels of review, and we know it's as close to truth as possible, we haven't allowed other individuals and other organizations, other actors, other messengers to be at the table with us. So we've told people that unless you hear it from us, you can't trust it. It's not true. And what that has resulted in is we have no equity in this country when it comes to people's health and community health. Interesting. So we we really need to get much better at if there's a round table and it has 12 chairs, one of those chairs should be somebody in public health. And the other 11 should represent different communities, different types of people that we need to reach. Let's pivot a little bit to the responsibility of some of the groups, of some of the organizations that are that are the platform sharing information. So obviously we live in a nation that believes strongly in free speech. And I think it's extremely important to continue to believe in free speech. Yet we also have these exceptions for public health risks, right? You know, you go into a movie theater and you yell fire. While you have the right of free speech, you've incited an activity that's illegal. You know, We need people to get vaccinated. We need herd immunity. We need people to hear the right information. So what's the responsibility therefore? 
of the social media companies and the platforms when they see false information and they know that could indeed harm public health. How are you seeing the social media platforms respond or manage through this issue of misinformation? I think the major uh, social media sites, and, and we've had good conversations with a lot of them, are trying very hard, but are far from perfect. Uh, so hiring armies of fact checkers, making partnerships with fact checking organizations, this increasing uh, policing of uh, misinformation on their platforms is occurring, but it is far from where it needs to be. And um, I'm a big fan of, of social media myself. I don't think it's inherently evil. I think a lot of good comes from it as well. But uh, I think we're at a point now where regulation, from my point of view, is really important. And uh, we don't allow on television whatever anyone wants to say to, to be said. The evolution of our media landscape has, has occurred so fast the institutions in our country that are responsible for figuring things out and coming up with a regulatory framework for new technologies are painfully behind, woefully behind. So I don't think it's actually entirely the fault of social media companies. I view it as more of a societal issue. Um, they, they carry a lot of blame. I don't mean to say to imply that they don't. But I when I look at hearings that talk about regulating social media companies, uh, or I look at uh, reports put out by think tanks, I don't see the level of understanding of how social networks work or how this mm. technology functions, where it's really a one-to-one -one conversation. I see a lot of tech trying to educate policymakers, and it just feels like it's such an imbalance um, in that conversation. So I think there's some responsibility on public health to retrain itself and, and get up to speed so that we can have uh, an educated conversation with the people who work in the tech industry and help them figure out a solution. That's kind of where I sit. Um, I do think regulation is important. I do see companies doing things, but I think it's, it's nowhere near what it needs to be. So let's talk about the Public Good Project's answer to the misinformation issues. You launched the Stronger Campaign, and this is a campaign really meant to help people understand and identify misinformation around vaccines. You're kind of training people and deputizing them to really take action, understand what's happening, understand where good sources of information are, and recognize bad information. How is the Stronger Campaign literally helping in the misinformation efforts? When, when we looked at the landscape of what was being done uh, uh, that was pro-vaccine, pro-science, one of the things that we noticed right away were that there were a lot of great efforts uh, that had happened in the past and that were currently happening. They all focused on education, on, on health promotion. Let's inform people about uh, immunization and vaccines. Let's answer their questions. Um, and let's make sure that um, when someone's looking for the right information, they can find it, that there's an answer for them. And that's great. And that should continue. And there's groups that are advocating for um, uh, for policies that are that I would describe as public health policies. And I think that's great. And those should continue. What there wasn't were a, uh, a national campaign that was uh, an advocacy campaign. 
that was uh, mobilizing the majority of Americans who are pro-science and pro-vaccines, mobilizing them to address misinformation, which we saw as a, a root cause of vaccine hesitancy and, and vaccine opposition. When you ask people, how do you actually report misinformation on a social media site? They can't tell you. They don't know. There's mm. the tools in that site that allow you to do so, but no one knows how to use them. And then uh, they also don't know what misinformation looks like to begin with. It, it's a confusing space. And they don't know the difference between disinformation and misinformation. What is the difference? <laughs> uh, misinformation is something that is not true, but not necessarily shared or created out of any kind of malicious intent. Whereas disinformation is knowingly false and shared with malicious intent. Ah. So if your um, relative is a victim of misinformation and shares a post that they, they believe is true, uh, if they believe that there's a microchip in, in, a, in a vaccine and they're sharing that, that's misinformation. The person who created uh, that conspiracy theory, that was disinformation. Great example. Okay. Stronger is new. It's, it's in this space. It's only a few months old. Its partners include state vaccine coalitions, fact-checking organizations, which is really new for public health. They've never worked with public health and, and vice versa. And just new and different partners that typically would not be involved in any kind of public health issue, but that are very concerned about misinformation and have their own learnings and skills and expertise to apply to a public health problem, which is vaccine hesitancy and vaccine opposition. So we, we started um, just getting people aware of what was going on and giving them the tools that, uh, to react to misinformation when they saw it. And now what we're pivoting to is now that more people are aware of the campaign and we have some great, amazing partners, we're pivoting to this army of advocates that are out there across the United States. And when we see misinformation pop up, in Project Vector or through partners alerting us, those people and those organizations are informed that this is a thing that we think needs to be addressed. And they'll go out and say in their own way to their own community, to the people who pay attention to them, they'll we'll all collectively respond in our own manner. It can't just be the CDC. Uh, it can't just be a state health department. It can't just be one campaign. Uh, it needs to be a collective movement that is frustrated with the state of affairs when it comes to misinformation and wants to do something about it and just needs the right information to allow them to do something. Excellent. And just because we all believe in transparency, I'll say Bio is a supporter uh, financially of the Stronger Campaign and, and definitely excited to see what it's been able to do in terms of teaching people how to recognize misinformation. So obviously this last year, there was a lot of political pressure exerted on many of the most important um, institutions that really are responsible for evaluating vaccines and medical products, the FDA and the CDC in particular, um, even though those scientists were working arduously to make sure they were doing a, a detailed scientific review. As you track the media over the last few months, do you still see that there's that that 
political pressure is resonating in terms of impacting how people view the FDA and the CDC and their ability to do good work? Do you see that loss of faith still continuing in the media? Yeah, it's massive. It's uh, it's <laughs> massive. Yeah. That's bad. <laughs> it's it's really concerning. I mean, I would even go so far as to say it's scary. I I don't think we really understand what the outcome of it is going to be uh, in our country and 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 globally because it's it's not just happening in the U.S. Uh, but we have a unique brand of it here during this pandemic. What we've seen that is a big change because we were monitoring vaccine communications before the pandemic hit. So we can compare the two time periods. What we're seeing is enormous misinformation and disinformation about the role of government, the role of uh, the pharmaceutical uh, industry, the role of health officials and scientists. And each one of those areas has its own narrative and its own talking points and tactics, but they all add up to bad. (laughs) And in groups where they wouldn't have been in the past skeptical of the CDC, but they now are because of the role that they viewed it playing during this pandemic. And so I, I don't know what the outcome of it will be, but I, it, it's very concerning and it's very high. The volume of these sorts of messages that are saying these sorts of things is in the tens of millions every single day. And it's seen by tens of millions of people every single day. I don't know what it's, what it's going to result in, but I think it's going to take years to repair Uh, And I don't think we're going to be able to repair it by going back to the way that we did things before the pandemic. I think if the CDC under the new administration becomes the CDC of 2019 again, it's not going to do anything uh, to to make the situation better. So I think we got a a real challenge in front of us. And I think another thing that that is scary to me is uh, personal attacks. Yeah. Yeah. That was one of the things I was going to ask about. I mean, just uh, there's a the the personal nature of attacking scientists and other advocates has been very alarming and has you know increased considerably what we saw was a learning that started in the anti-vaccine uh, leadership in the United States a light bulb went off and they realized we are making headway at making people skeptical of institutions and and public health and health authorities But we can do that much more effectively if we put the faces of individual decision makers in these institutions up on our social media accounts and in our newsletters and on our YouTube stations. And we go about discrediting this person because a person is much easier to attack and discredit than an institution. Mm. And uh, they started doing this a few years ago, but it's picked up and it's much more strategic these days. And there are some extremely uh, large followed groups that, that now do this regularly. And the result is doxing, which is a term that means putting someone's uh, personally identifiable information on social media or in a public forum, knowing that that person will then be attacked uh, verbally. And in, in some cases, of course, what we're all most concerned about is, is physically. And so what we've seen during the pandemic is the system that we created, the, the one that you referenced, Project Vector, it, it was that system that the New York Times used to write the story about Dr. Fauci being targeted by extremist groups, physically uh, threatened. And that was really the first big case that, that we saw in our data. And since then, it's every day. 
since then, we're, we see every day um, threats to county epidemiologists, government scientists um, at every level. It's become a, a really effective tactic of uh, organizations and individuals that um, for whatever their incentive is, the outcome that they want to see is nobody getting vaccinated uh, and, a, and a much reduced role uh, of science in our society. So it's really concerning. It's really scary. So you referenced this a little bit ago when we were talking about this this issue. The Biden administration now needs to come in and think about not just responding to COVID-19 and getting the vaccine in, into the place where it's vaccination, but also resetting the country's views of the scientific integrity and importance of the CDC and the FDA, as well as probably other institutions, but those are the two we care about the most in terms of vaccines. Mm-hmm. How would you advise them to think about doing this in, you know, in the middle of still responding to a pandemic, we need to get back to good with regard to the CDC and FDA and, and America's view of them as gold standard institutions. Well, I think Dr. Fauci's become a, a, a publicly recognized hero for really good reason, but he is actually not unique. He is one of many, many, many seasoned, honest individuals with a high level of integrity who are uh, trained scientists, trained practitioners who show up every day and want uh, and really believe uh, in the in the job of protecting the American public and informing the American public. And I think that's that's something that the incoming administration understands the need to put the thousand other Fauci's that we have at the federal and state level, put them in front of cameras, put them in front of the public and show through your actions uh, that you should be trusted. And I think you do that by putting people of integrity up in those positions. I think the change that we need to see is, is not only that, but a much more concerted, true effort to involve communities uh, and, and different groups. And there, I'm not going to say that's never happened before, but it now needs to happen at a scale and at a level of intention that I don't think we've ever seen before in this country. Totally agree with that. <laughs> it's the scale that's almost daunting. You really do need that round table idea that you described to be very much aligned as quickly as possible. And that's that's definitely going to be tough. How do we go about doing this in such a short period of time and applying that to these fast-moving social media activities. A lot of the communities that, that need to be reached the most have been the ones most impacted by, a, by what yeah. I would call a, a bungled uh, federal response, a criminally negligent federal response is what I would call it. So you have a group of exhausted people. You have a group of exhausted firefighters who are in the middle of putting out the most recent house and you're telling them you, you have a hundred more to go. And, and by the way, also do this while you're doing that. So I, I, um, I think it's a huge challenge. We've never vaccinated this many people before, and we've never vaccinated this many people on the timeline that, that we're asking uh, our, ourselves to do. And so we need to figure out a way to dig even deeper into a reservoir that feels like it has nothing left in it to come together as, as, a, as a people and in a really earnest, honest way that has energy behind it start going out into communities and, and, and talking to people and listening, honestly listening. 
I don't have all the answers, but I, uh, the scale of the mobilization that we need in every facet of what we've talked about today is, is larger than anything we've ever done before. It's interesting because as I think about how we open this, talking about your work in Swaziland and what brought you to this place and how that work fired you up in essence, it gave you that mission. It sounds like we've come almost full circle. You literally went to Swaziland, got off the truck, um, you know, and they were like, so here's the problem. HIV is increasing and killing more people every day. What are you going to do? How are you going to engage people? Who are you going to teach? How are we going to get this number down? It feels like we're having almost exactly the same kind of problem and discussion uh, for the U.S. in terms of COVID. Um, and it sounds like you're, you, you've come full circle almost in the work that you're doing. I think you have actually more insight into my perspective than I did, because uh, I, I hadn't put those two things together. <laughs> um <laughs> But, but yeah, the, the lesson that I would take from Swaziland is when I was there, it was, there was over 40% of the population that, that had HIV. There were funerals every day. You met someone and then they were dead shortly after you met them. It was that bad. And a lot of our volunteers came back with PTSD. I came back with PTSD uh, and am, am now fine and can talk about it. And, and in fact, was a Peace Corps recruiter for a while. <laughs> um, but I think the when you look at a society that's exhausted by living through um, a, a disease at such a scale, what um, if there is a lesson to be learned there, it's that the reservoir of hope in people is is actually inexhaustible. It's always there. And if you find people who, for whatever reason, inside themselves, they still have it in them to fight and they're still energized and they can still motivate other people, regardless of the background that they're coming from, find them and empower them uh, to be your ally and to do what they're telling you needs to be done. And, and that, I think, is, is a lesson that we can directly apply here in the United States. It's fantastic that you went from 10 minutes ago saying, and I'm scared, to actually saying, and I'm hopeful, and this is the path forward. I, I really wanted to thank you for all the great work that Public Good Project is doing in this space uh, for vaccines in general, educating people on how to recognize misinformation and disinformation, and really getting real-time, fast, important data to those who are trying to make decisions and educate people about COVID-19 vaccines across the country. It's fantastic work, and I've really enjoyed talking with you, as always. Thanks a lot for the opportunity, and thanks for your support. That's all for today. Don't forget to subscribe on your podcast player of choice. Or even better, if you learned something useful today, please share a link to the I Am Bio pod with your family and friends. Also, with two COVID vaccines now authorized, we need your help to end this pandemic. Please help us spread truth, not virus. Get the facts on vaccination at covidvaccinefacts.org. And certainly join the Stronger campaign as well at stronger.org if you want to help prevent misinformation. 